Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for at least a decade. She is a sharp lady. We're talking to her today because there's all this talk and has been for years about putting people on the bus in the right seats, right? Putting the right butts in the right seats. There's been books about it. There's been TED Talks about it. Really getting together the right team. Well, she builds the bus. In fact, she builds systems rather than cages based on systems and mechanical engineering concepts. So, coming to us live from San Francisco Bay Area, please welcome our disruptor, founder, and lead consultant at Bellevue Consulting, Belle Walker. Hi, KJ. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited for this conversation. Yes. Now, did I get this right? Bellevue Consulting? Yes. Okay, great. Belle, love the name. Thank (laughs) you. Absolutely love the name. So I'm very interested in this building the bus with systems and engineering principles. But before we get into that, tell me, when you go into an area and have to build the bus, you innovate, right? You disrupt. What's your main ingredient for disruption? I would say my main ingredient for disruption is lack of context of how things are supposed to work in the the world I have found myself in. (laughs) So I, in designing these structures and processes that support organizations, I come at it from this engineering perspective, trying to articulate the pain points as clearly as possible, understand what the materials available, the options are, pulling those together into a solution that really makes sense for the particular organization I'm I'm working with. And I think I just didn't realize going into it that there were ways that it was supposed to be done and that there were options that you were supposed to be picking from. So uh, to, to some extent I, would, extent, I would say contextual ignorance. <laughs> but Is in it- a way that has, I think, benefited over the long term. Yeah. Is it contextual ignorance or is it just contextual ignoring? At this point, it's definitely contextual ignoring. I kind of stumbled into engineering at all. I'm from a long family of line of engineers, and I was pretty far out of school before it really sank in that I could have studied something else. Uh, so even though I ended up at a liberal arts school, I still ended up in the engineering program. And so that was never really sort of where my brain was, where my interests were. And and that, I think, has served me really well, because not a lot of people like me who think the way I do end up in engineering, because why would you? And so <laughs> it has given me a somewhat unique perspective on the the challenges and the problems that I like to solve, which is 
how do you get people to work together more effectively? That is so interesting. And I love that you come from this engineering background. I've said this before, my father went to Georgia Tech. So anytime that I had to, I wanted to do something that I had to get approval for, I really had to have almost like a business plan to present to him why this was, <laughs> why this was important and what was what were we going to get out of it, right? So let's dive into this. Good to great. A book that came out. I mean, I think that really started the putting the right butts in the right seat on the bus. Yeah. Or at least it made it very popular, right? There is all this talk about building teams. Like I said before, when we were talking, I mean, just doing market research for a large international consulting company, the third biggest ruin for fast growth company CEOs was getting the right team, putting the right team on the right seats in the bus. But nobody really talks about building the bus ever. And I think it's gone out of vogue a little bit, right? Because before everyone was talking about having the right individuals on your team, they were talking about this notion of people as sort of interchangeable cogs in a machine. And that, of course, is not how people work. And so when they started to move away from this idea that you could just interchange anyone into a job description, I think the pendulum swung really far the other way and said, okay, who are our amazing leaders? Let's shape everything around them. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. Where I think a lot of companies are are missing a key ingredient, I see it as sort of solving two puzzles separately and then looking at how they they come together. So on the one hand, in the abstract, I do think it's really valuable to look at what are the roles, the structures in a, a perfect world. If you could have any talents and any talent mix, what is the bus that you would design, that you would build? How would you lay out those seats in a way that works best for your industry right now, for your company right now, for your product And then you look at the individuals that you have that you really want to empower and enable and you say, what can I do to give them the motivation, the inspiration, the support that they need to absolutely crush it for my business? And then you have to bring those two pieces together. And I think historically, we've tended to do one or the other and forgotten that you you really need to do both if you want long term success. And it's such a logical perspective, right? (laughs) It's so simple. But you're right, the pendulum has swung the other way. And very much so, the building the bus was a key factor and really looked at before the pendulum really swung. Now that the pendulum has swung, right? Let's talk about where the gaps are, where the dangers are, what happens that really inhibits putting the right people on the right bus in the right seats? Like what's happening out there, especially with our fast growth companies? I tend to see a couple of key issues. One is it can be really hard to have honest conversations around people's strengths and where a little bit more cross-bracing support from other teams, from other leaders could benefit an individual. You don't have to talk about weaknesses. You don't even have to talk about gaps. You could just you can talk about opportunities for collaboration and cross support. No matter how you phrase it, though, you can try and soften it. It becomes really challenging for some leaders to have those, those open and honest conversations. Give me an example. 
So if you have a team that has come up together, they went from five people to 150 individuals. You may have a leader who has uh, never done product design before. They are fantastic at taking a vision and implementing against it, but they've never really been the ideator. And in a tiny team, if you have too many ideators, nothing is going to get done. So yeah, for the best. But as you get bigger and bigger, you start to need this ideation happening at more and more senior levels. And so this can become a, a challenge around, do you have the right person in the right seat? Do you have the right seat for that person? And I think historically, way back when, the approach would have been to say, you know what, there's a senior role here that needs to be all about ideation. So sorry, person, you're out. Thanks for all the fish. And on the you know more modern world, we say we're going to groom you, we're going to grow you into that ideator. But not not everybody has those ideas, and that's okay. What I would be looking at is is there a way to structure these roles where maybe you have a complementary organization or structure where the ideation is in a different position and this role can really be all about execution. Maybe you shift from a traditional single product execution. Maybe there's another piece of the execution on the, you know, maybe go go crazy, bring sales or marketing in on the execution side if that's where this person's strength really lies, but keep the and then move your product design and your creative elements all into a different team. You know what you need as a leader. You know where you need that creativity and all of that big thinking. You also know where you need execution. And I think we tend to assume that the top level has to be all ideation. And then the next level is all about execution. And I think there's other ways to organize it if you take a step back and really think about what is most important to you. How does that work with systems and engineering principles? I tend to think of engineering as a pretty, you know, I break it down in the, in the simplest explanation I can, I can come up with. I think of it as I have a problem, I have available materials, and I have areas that are absolute no-goes. And how can I bring those things together to come to a solution? And I laid it out as if it's, you know, one, then two, then three. But the reality is that it's this very iterative conversation where you say, I think I'm trying to solve problem A. And I think I have this set of available options. And I'm pretty sure that these are the things that cannot be done or included. And then you cycle right back through, you know, how you try to solve problem A. But if there isn't a good solution, you start looking at, okay, is there an A1 variant or is there a slightly different problem that I can solve with what I have? Or if this has to be the piece that I'm addressing, have I really listed all of my available options, all of my resources? Is there something we have available to us that's not on the table. Are all these things I've listed as no-goes and constraints actually no-goes and constraints, or did I just make some assumptions going in? And that continuing to loop through that process, it's it's what we're taught as engineers, but I think when you describe it that way, there's probably very few leaders listening to this going, oh no, I would never use a process like that, right? <laughs> it's a pretty basic problem-solving approach. We just get a lot more drilling in putting it to use in engineering than I think some other 
disciplines get the benefit of. I think you're exactly right with that. And it is almost like a matrix that's constantly at work, right? These quadrants are, you know, circular right. or whatever that's constantly in work and it is how you think. Do you think that part of the status quo of this, okay, we've, we've grown from five to 150 and, you know, you don't have the skill set. Thanks. See you later. I mean, this is just a recurring theme that makes people feel like that as companies get bigger, they're just a cog in the wheel, that they're just, this is just the corporate stifle. Do you feel like that this is part of the status quo? I think it is part of the status quo. I, I also think that sometimes that is what is best for everyone. I think the challenge is being able to take a step back and really think, especially as a decision maker, as the person who has the final decision making authority, really, really, what are you willing to consider? What options are actually on the table? And so from, from an engineering perspective, this is really all about understanding your constraints. And that can be a really tricky conversation because there's huge cultural zeitgeist pressure around not playing favorites and doing what's best in the abstract. And there's a lot of value and truth in that. However, especially in small businesses where there is no check on the final person in power, being as honest as possible about where your non-negotiables are is, in my opinion, absolutely crucial to creating something that is going to work for everyone in your organization down the line. I, it's probably not a popular opinion, but I would much rather be super upfront about a little bit of family nepotism and say, look, my son is going to be on my leadership team. Period. Period. Okay, well, then let's figure out what is your son actually good at? Where can they really be benefiting this organization? How do we make sure that this design accounts for that and nobody has to suffer as a result, which is I think, a bit of an unpopular opinion. Yeah, well, it sounds like that's part of the status quo is that the top leadership is not always transparent about their non-negotiables. Like this is non-negotiable. Like this is, you know, and it, that is really based on a, sometimes a very personal preference. And I, of course, that's a, probably a, a bit of an extreme example. Somebody is really not a good fit for an organization, even in a family situation, few leaders are going to insist, but I'm making it sound very black and white. Usually it's, it's much more nuanced than that. Right. And the, the conversation is going to play out more as I'm I'm going to try and finagle this role for my son and, <laughs> and try and justify it. And we were talking ahead of time and there's definitely a large part of me that feels a little bit mismatched with, with engineering in general, but this is one area where I'm much happier if we can just get it all out on the table and say, what are the constraints we're actually working with? If it's really that important to you that your son is part of the leadership team, great. Let's figure out how that benefits your business. Let's figure out how that benefits your team. Let's figure out how everyone can win around that constraint rather than pretending that it's it's no, it's not really that important to me. If there's a role for him, we'll put him in it. Nobody wins right. that way. Right. When people come to you, are they in a crisis of building the bus? Have they gotten to this point like, oh my gosh, we are on this trajectory and it's <laughs> killing me 
like the team's not working well together. We thought we put people on the, the right seats or like, when do they have the epiphany that they need to build the bus or do they come to you still clueless? Somewhere in the middle. So I'm going to talk about my, my favorite category of, of clients. And, and it's, it's the, the ones who are right where you first start to need the bus. Because when you're a startup, if you're five people trying to put in the kind of structure and discipline that, that I bring to the table is a disaster, right? You, you want everyone stepping in wherever they can, whenever they need to. And where that stops being true totally varies industry to industry, company to company, team to team. So there's no rule you can follow that says, oh man, I, I hit X people. I should call Bell. <laughs> Instead, I, companies tend to hit a breaking point where they suddenly realize that they have amazing people who are not coordinating with each other very effectively anymore. They've, they've just crossed some invisible threshold. They start to have one of the most common symptoms is they start to appoint middle managers. They start to put someone in the middle and those people very quickly walk out the door. And so often the, the challenge is that they, they want some sort of structure. They want something that the leaders feel like they're, you know, standing in front of a dam plugging every hole with their own fingers and they can't reach half of them and everything feels like it's going to wash them away. And, Oftentimes the, the real challenge is that they, they're trying to fill the bus. They're trying to put butts in seats, but they haven't thought even for a moment, is this a charter bus? Is this a school bus? Is this a minivan? Like what the heck are we filling? What are we trying to do? Who belongs here? What do we actually need? That is another really interesting factor. I mean, I can even see that in the growth of my company. Tell me, so they start hiring these middle managers. Yes, absolutely. That is like the next progression. But then they start like leaving, right? What's causing them to leave? So often they're not hiring middle managers. They're promoting middle mm -hmm. managers. And the promotions tend to look something like waving a magic wand and changing a setting, maybe in a system somewhere, maybe a pay raise. Abracadabra. Right. Abracadabra. Congratulations. You're a manager. Wow. <laughs> Here's your team. <laughs> Even if all that changed beyond that waving of the magic wand was a, a slight reduction in the individual delivery expectations for that person, that's sustainable for a while. But often you don't even get that. It's literally just this pile on of, hey, you're one of our top performers. You have been absolutely kicking butt. You clearly know what you're doing. Congratulations. You are now also responsible for an entire team of people to figure out how they're going to kick butt. But don't let your performance slip because then we might question whether or not we put you in the right role because <laughs> you're not our star performer anymore. And I'll be honest, I don't know a ton of star performers who get there by having a ton of free time where they are, you know, could take on a whole nother hat, like managing a team. Yes. It sounds all too familiar, right? And they do this because number one, they don't know. Number two, because, you know, there is theories and principles out there and just even like a moral code, like you promote from within, you give people opportunities, people want opportunities, people say they want opportunities. Do they really? Do they know what that entails? Are they really qualified for that? I mean, th those are part of it, it too, right? 
they're very real questions and it's from both directions, right? Those middle managers are truly in the middle. There are now expectations coming at them from, from every direction. They probably have peers who need things from them. They now have direct reports. They now have still have their leaders looking sort of down, down the chain. And what I've, what I've seen, I'm going to pass the buck up the chain a little bit because one of the most common sort of challenges I see is that that the leader appointing the manager is thinking something along the lines of you are awesome at what you do I want you to share that knowledge and sh- you know you know I want you to be in a position where you can support and grow more people like you and that desire is fantastic right it's hugely complimentary it is it's good for the individual's ego it's good for the business but the implementation requires a lot more questions. For example, are you interested in supporting other people to be like you, or do you want to just keep doing what you do? Do you want to be in more of a mentoring role supporting others, or do you want specific accountability and responsibility for others? Because those are two different things. And so I, I think it's, I'm, big on leadership as a distinction from management, but I challenge that they are separate. I I think it's more of an embedded Venn diagram. So all managers need to be leaders, but not all leaders should be managers. I think management is leadership plus the obligation to support and nurture and grow your team. So when you put someone in that, that management position, yes, you have put them in a leadership position, but you have also added a lot of day-to-day, very specific responsibility to their plate. And have you made room for it? Wow. That was a mouthful. <laughs> I, mean, I feel like there were so many mic drops in there. I look at this from the viewpoint, not only of my company, but also my clients, right? Fast growth trajectory clients on healthcare, finance, IT. And these are real issues, Right. And I thought of something as well, too, like there's a leader and there's a manager. And I want you to clarify something for me before you said it. You need to have a manager that's also a leader. Yeah, I define leaders as people who who motivate and inspire those around them. And if you have a manager who can't motivate and inspire their team, you're going to see some performance issues there. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a fundamental requirement for for management is to be a leader. However, I think that managers, what defines a manager is somebody who supports, enables, and empowers their team members. I don't think there's any obligation on a leader to actually reach back and lend that helping hand up. The leaders, the, you know, the pure leadership is that looking into the future, defining the vision, creating what we, you know, we all want to follow. It's, it's a pull force. And the management is when you actually give that support and lift up the team to come along with that leadership vision. Yeah. And it's also like a production officer hat too, as a manager, you have to demand, you said accountability, but you have to demand production. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you have to demand accountability. Maybe not all leaders have that. Definitely not all leaders have that. And and asking them to add that into what they do can stifle those wonderful things that are are making them visionaries in your organization. And so drawing that distinction, I think, is is crucial to 
putting the right butts in the right seats on the bus and understanding which seats are there for visionaries and for leaders and which seats are okay, the visionaries and the leaders who can actually now lift the team up along with us. <laughs> yeah. So your favorite type of client, which we're getting into a particular mindset, a particular area of growth or position of a company is when they see that, oh my gosh, the bus wheels are falling off. Like they go into hiring middle managers, it's not working. And what are they looking for exactly? Because I know sometimes people look for something, they can't articulate what it is they need. Yeah, so I came up with a, a motto, a tagline for, for my company, which is I, I take organizations from friction to function. Mm. And it's really abstract, but it, for me, has been kind of the embodiment of, it's the clearest way I've come up with to get leaders to kind of resonate with when they might need this approach or, or this support. Because it can be the other thing to look for is when promoting somebody to a management role is basically starting a countdown timer to them leaving your organization. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all seen those those startups. Yep. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So friction to function, great soundbite, and I know every one of our listeners here can totally relate with all the friction. Our listeners are C-suite executives in fast-growing companies that you understand. I envision them going, yes, friction. We've got this friction. We've got that friction. we got this friction. Tell me what the function looks like, you know, the ideal scene for the function, because that's not always something that they can, they might envision it, but maybe not really. Yeah. And, and so this is a case where where friction in this context, I tend to think of as basically an overwhelming stopping force. You're trying to move forward and you just can't overcome the, the friction. It's holding you in place. And so you, you have all the energy, the drive, the, the passion, and you just can't feel yourself moving forward at all. The function piece is, is about and having that momentum, regaining that momentum, reducing the friction so that you can move forward and the engineers listening to this call are going to love to challenge us and say, but if you have no friction, you can't control anything. You can't go right. And totally fair. The, the goal is to get the friction under control and make it work for you, right? There's nothing about function that says it has to be frictionless, but we do, you know, if your defining feeling of your organization is that, plugging holes in the dam or running as hard as you can and making no progress, maybe it's time to, to change it up a little bit. Yes. Well, for all these engineers out there and our scientific minds, Belle and I do know that absolutes are unattainable in this universe. So <laughs> there's never going to be such a thing as no friction. Sorry, just not going to happen. <laughs> right. And it comes in moderation, right? Right. And, you know, friction is your is your friend, right? We couldn't walk, we, we couldn't move, we couldn't stop without a little bit of friction. But when that's all you're feeling as a leader, or as a as a organization, as a contributor, okay, maybe it's time to take a step back and say, why? What's happening here? How can we unblock these roles and allow people to to be successful? What's your 
methodology of taking your matrix or your principles and going in and figuring out the why initially? So I, uh, yeah. It, so initially, the goal for me is to really understand, first and foremost, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? Because that I will say part of why I love the friction to function as kind of a way to get people thinking about whether the work I do is helpful is because that level of abstraction tends to resonate even when the people I'm working with aren't entirely sure what the problem is. They hear friction and they go, oh, yeah, we have so much friction. And if you were to ask them what's causing your friction, they go, I don't, I don't know, know, but it's a lot. <laughs> and so step one is is really diving in and figuring out, okay, where what does friction mean in this context? What makes you feel like you're not moving forward? Because it could be something like we don't actually know where we're trying to go. And we have all of the, the energy and the motive power, but we don't have, you know, we're, we're at a roadblock and we, we need that road ahead of us to be able to make progress. And, and that's that's not what I do. So understanding is is the problem you're trying to solve actually a problem that I, I can solve is, is really step zero. And then getting in a little more deeply and saying, okay, you know where you're trying to go. You generally have great people to do it. It's connecting those dots. And and so then that becomes really breaking down, taking what I think of as a very sort of traditional engineering approach, stating as clearly as possible, what is the objective you're trying to achieve? Understanding what are the resources that you have available to you and what are your constraints? And the constraints can be the hardest part, right? Because that's where it can get a little tricky. You have to get really honest and say, KJ as part of my leadership team is a constraint. She's not going anywhere, period, end of statement. Okay, we're going to make a team and a design that works with that constraint. But getting leaders to be that level of honest can be its own kind of challenge. Yeah. Are you able to do it? I like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a success story that you have uh, where you've really taken this function, friction to function to a very successful level for the company and you. Yeah. So I actually like to, to talk about two companies that I was working with at pretty much exactly the same time. And they were both about the same size organization, both about 50 people who had kind of hit this wall, the founders, and in both cases, they had two co-founders. Both sets of founders were going a little bonkers because the business was growing and their team felt absolutely capped. They they were really struggling to think how they could possibly add anyone else to this miasma of humanity that they had trying to figure out how to work together to actually accommodate you know, to drive this business and one was in professional services and one was in cannabis delivery so we're talking about completely different worlds very similar situations but we ended up at very different solutions because in our cannabis delivery company they had a lot of great enthusiasm and not a lot of experienced leaders but yeah. a lot of people who were starting out their careers and wanted to grow right and they were doing pretty well. So they had a whole bunch of extra capital lying around. And so for them, we knew where they were, where they were headed, but we started with saying, let's have a whole bunch of smaller teams. Let's give your, your middle managers a chance to learn what it means to actually grow and develop and take care of a small team first. 
And then we can expand those teams over time as the organization grows. And so that you know, allows more junior people to take on those leadership roles. It sets a very different growth trajectory, whereas our professional services company, they didn't have quite the same margin, lots of business, right? Still growing, but not the same margin dynamic. And they generally had much more experienced team members. And so in their case, we were able to sort of separate out and say, look, we, we're going to have larger teams that we're putting together and we're going to have uh, more dedicated managers across these broader teams that can provide technical guidance in a way that was not as applicable in our cannabis delivery company. And so the, the final structures, even though that initial problem statement was basically identical, the solutions that we came up with for each of them looked very different because when you took one step farther out and really looked at the environment that they were working in, the constraints that they had for their business at that time, the solution that made the most sense looked a little different. And so that's that's where that's what I love the most, right? Is being able to take these very similar sounding problems and get one level deeper and say, okay, I, I hear your problem, but what is the solution that will actually work for you right now? Yeah, that's beautiful. And I know when you really find the right why, it does open the door to the handling, right? Wrong whys will not. Um, so what ends up happening with both of them? So both of them have been doing really well. They've both continued to grow. This is one of the adventures of the work that I do is when we do it well, it, it just becomes a, a non-story, right? And they, they continue to grow. They continue to be successful. And, and this was just a little bit of an inflection point that allowed them to get right back on that growth trajectory and, and keep pushing on forward. That's great. That's amazing. I love that. So how did you get on this particular path, <laughs> right? Liberal arts, engineering family, you know, I mean, did you have a lot of influence in thinking this way growing up? Or did you like all of a sudden realize one day, like, holy crap, I, I actually am very good at this particular point. I'm going in this direction. How did Belle get where she is? So I've always been a bit of an extreme extrovert and a people person and also a little impatient. And so I, I don't really like when things that I consider nonsense get in the way of getting work done. I come, I, you know, I have, I have sort of an an attitude of an assumption that that people come to work wanting to do their best work and that if you put barriers in their way yeah some of them are going to fight down those barriers and push through them and and it, it succeed and thrive anyway but why why make them do that why not just get rid of the barriers so that even the people who maybe aren't as motivated to fight but still want to do great work can uh and and so when i this sort of started to crystallize for me even in my first role out of school i was uh, i was building an aerial photography operation and in a much larger bureaucracy and so i was i had fabulous mentors who would show me you know here's how you get around this thing and here's how you get around that thing coming with an engineering degree into an operating you know building an operation right off the bat was still in this very engineering college student mindset of let's just 
take the tools I have and throw them at whatever problem is in front of me. And it worked. And so those influences kind of came together and where I realized an org structure is still a structure, just like a mechanical structure. And so if you stop and start thinking about it that way, there's this old concept of, I'm blanking on the name, but this idea that people are interchangeable cogs in a machine and that you just swap. And obviously that's nonsense, right? People are not interchangeable cogs in a machine, but also cogs are not interchangeable cogs in the machine. You can't just open a watch and start swapping the gears around and expect the watch to work. Like it's such a fundamental misunder scientific management. That's, that's the term and it's nonsense. But people have long said it's nonsense because people are not interchangeable cogs, not because the whole idea is bonkers. And so if you actually approach it like an engineer, you actually take the time to say, what is the problem statement? What are the resources I have available? How do I bring those things? To, you know, what are my constraints? How do I bring those pieces together to solve the problem? And hey, it works pretty well. That's a really beautiful statement. And when you talk about the org structure is like a mechanical structure, I just really pinpointed the common denominator of the status quo is that an org chart is extremely dynamic and it has workability and it has mechanical workings, but companies put it up as a it's like a certificate on the wall. Here's, here's our org structure. It's not dynamic. You know, it's more like organizing chart or organizing chart. It's yes. very dynamic. It's not static, right? And it is based on mechanical engineering. Absolutely. And I don't think companies look at this at all. And I think there's a huge, exactly. Yes, that was so well articulated. <laughs> well, I just had the ding, 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 right? Like, oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and it's what I love, right? Being able to say, here here are these people, these wonderful, unique individuals with, with strengths and gaps, and together they can be so successful if we put them together in the right way. Right. <laughs> How do we design something for for these individuals that now allows them to thrive because of who they are, not despite who they are? Exactly. So, Belle, what do you do outside of Bellevue Consulting? What's your crazy passions? Probably my craziest passion is I love running half marathons or my my happy distance, and I'm a Disney nut, and it turns out that Disney holds races, so <laughs> I spend a non-zero amount of time running races, although that's getting a little more interesting because I also have a six-month-old. Oh, home. wow. Oh, wow. So. Well, can't you run the Disney race and, like, push the stroller? Uh, it's pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, they, they, these races are huge, so they're a little limiting. But I'm pretty excited to let the baby hang out with the husband and <laughs> for my first race back and <laughs> just enjoy Disney for me. That's awesome. When is it? Is it coming up? November. That's right. Yeah, and that's always a big favorite for half marathoners, and they have a marathon too, right? Or is it all just half marathon? They have one marathon in January. Yeah. Got it. How many half marathons have you done? Ooh, uh, this is, well, it's probably shock. No, and I have a spreadsheet. I'd have to go look at the spreadsheet. <laughs> of course you do. Definitely over 50. It might be over a hundred at this point. I'd have to, to check, but I, I ran my first half marathon. Well, I actually walked my first half marathon in 
February of 2012, training for my first half marathon, I discovered that I had a heart defect that needed to be fixed. And so I got that fixed in early January, mid-January 2012, and they let me walk as long as I kept my heart rate below a certain level. Wow. And you've done, so that was when you did your first half marathon. So now you've done 50 since then. Yep. That's kick ass. Yeah. Good for you. I I like it. Good for you. Well, good luck. It's your first half since you've had your baby. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yes. And I'm sure because you have a spreadsheet and everything, you probably have a very straight, like very planned out training (laughs) methodology of how you do this. In general, yes, although I am being a little more flexible with this one because I want to, my, my overriding goal for this, for this race is to make sure that I don't hurt myself and I can do more races in the future. There you go. Well, I've uh, run a half marathon once. Yay. Uh, and that was good enough for me. I was fine with that. <laughs> uh, totally fair. <laughs> okay, Belle, so how do people get a hold of you? The fastest way to get a hold of me is probably through the website, which is bellevueconsulting.com. There's a contact me form there, but LinkedIn also works very well. Either me or Bellevue Consulting, I check both sets of messages. So, Okay, great. So Belle Walker, everyone, contact her on LinkedIn. And Belle, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. It's been wonderful. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or laughed, go tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with some tidbit from the show. Thanks for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.